reminding you of Charge Weekend, as uh, Brother Stan uh, had mentioned earlier. That will start this Friday night and run through Sunday. Our guest speaker is Andrew Itson, and it will be a, a wonderful weekend because Charge Weekend is designed, as we say, to challenge and rejuvenate the church. And so as we enter this new year, this is an opportunity for us to be encouraged, to be challenged, and, and to be uh, fortified for this upcoming year. So please make plans to join us Friday night, Saturday night, and then on Sunday where we'll have our morning worship, our morning Bible class morning worship, a, a fellowship meal, and an early afternoon service. So please be making plans to join us for Charge Weekend. Back a few weeks ago, we introduced our theme for the year, and our theme is one. On December 4th, which we call Refined Sunday, in the morning uh, service, during the sermon that morning, I, I presented why we chose this theme. And, and it's centered around four key ideas, four key things that the term one communicates, particularly in Scripture. For instance, one communicates singularity in God's Word. You can go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 through 6, which is our theme verse for the year where Paul wrote, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belonged to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There is a singularity of truth that the word one communicates. But the one word one also communicates priority. It emphasizes that God should be the single priority of our lives. Think about the greatest command, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 and 38, where Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first. This is the priority of commandments. And then one also communicates unity. We consider Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, verse 20 and 21, where in the moments before his arrest, he prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us. There is uh, the word one also carries with it the idea that there's going to be unity in the body, both unity with God and unity with each other. And then the word one also communicates dignity or, or value. You can think about the parable of the lost sheep. As Jesus concluded that parable in Luke chapter 15 and verse 7, he said there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There, there Jesus communicates how valuable every single soul is. And with all of those ideas, is expressed in the term one, we chose for that to be our theme for 2023. And these key components, these things that the Bible communicates when it uses the term one, they will be emphasized in our preaching and teaching throughout the year, but we don't want our theme to be limited to just those things we study. We want our theme to also impact what we do. And so on that very same Sunday, Refined Sunday, December 4th, in the afternoon service, Ben Hogan presented a lesson in which he gave us three challenges. Challenges that we want every member to assume in this coming year. We're asking every member to choose one new way to serve the Lord in 2023. 
That means finding some way that you can do something for the glory of God that you have not done before. And we're asking every member to build one new Christian relationship in 2023. That means getting to know a fellow Christian that you don't have an intimate relationship with yet. That means fellowshipping with someone that you have not uh, done so with yet. That means building a relationship that does not currently exist with one of your brothers or sisters in Christ. And finally, we, we're asking and challenging every member to impact one new soul for the Lord, to find a way to have influence for the cause of Christ in the life of someone who does not yet know Christ. Those are our challenges for 2023, and I wanted to remind us of those at the outset of this lesson because we are entering this new year with this new theme. And since we are emphasizing the term one in 2023, I thought it would be really beneficial to consider some ways in which Jesus used this term. There are two occasions in the ministry of Jesus in which he used the phrase, one thing. Just one thing. Only two times does he use that phrase in his entire ministry. In all four Gospels, you only find it twice. This morning I want to look at those two accounts because I think in his use of that phrase, there are some important lessons for us to learn. So I want us to pay special attention to those times that Jesus put emphasis on just one thing. And the first time that occurs appears in the book of Luke, chapter 10, in association with the two sisters known as Mary and Martha. So if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 10, we'll read verse 38 through 42 and get a sense of the story before we dive into it. Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. We're told there that Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him, went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So you have these two sisters that Jesus visits. Apparently he was quite close to their family because this is not the only time he's going to visit these two sisters. Uh, you may recall that in John chapter 11, Jesus will go to their home once again because their brother Lazarus had died. In fact, when he was informed of Lazarus's death, he was told, the one whom you love has died. There is a depiction of a very intimate relationship between Jesus and this family. And then in John chapter 12, the very next chapter after Jesus brings Lazarus back from the grave, we read how Jesus went into another house and dined with these very same sisters and their brother Lazarus. And it was at that meal, at that occasion when he's in this home, that Mary anoints his feet with very expensive perfume that draws the ire of Judas. And so what we can see 
throughout the whole of the Gospels is that Jesus is very close to this family, to these sisters. There is an intimate relationship that he has with them. But here in Luke chapter 10, the focus of the story is on what these sisters do when Jesus is in their presence. When we are introduced to Mary in Luke chapter 10 verse 39, we are informed that she sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Then in the very next verse, Luke chapter 10 and verse 40, when we are introduced to Martha, we are told that she was distracted with much serving. Now Martha was likely the the matron of the house. She seems like she's the older sister, at least that's the depiction we're given. And so hostess duties fall on her. And what we have here is a depiction of these two sisters in which Martha is consumed with being a good hostess while Mary is consumed with being a good student. Martha is focused on serving. Mary is focused on listening. And it's worth pointing out that both of these activities are good. It's easy for us to be critical of Martha in this story because of how the story unfolds. But we need to understand that Martha is not engaged in sinful activity. She's not doing something that's contradictory to the life of a disciple. Christians are expected to show hospitality according to Romans chapter 12 and verse 13 and Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2 and 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9. Not only that, one of the qualifications of shepherds, of, of the, the, the leaders of the church, is to be hospitable. Hospitality is not a wrong thing. It is not a bad activity. It is not sinful in any way, shape, or form. And it's interesting, because if you do journey to John chapter 12, which I alluded to a moment ago, and you go to John chapter 12, and you read about this other occasion that Jesus goes to a dinner with these two sisters, guess what we're told in the second verse of John 12? That Martha was serving. And she didn't get criticized for serving again, because it's not a bad activity. See, the point is this. There's no condemnation of what Martha is doing. The activity in which she engaged while Jesus was at this house was not a bad activity in and of itself. See, it's not a matter of Mary doing something good and Martha doing something bad. That assertion of Jesus, that Mary has chosen the good portion, can be a little misleading if we don't understand what the word good means in this context. See, the Greek term translated good in this passage is being used for the purpose of comparison. And it would be better translated as better. In other words, Mary has chosen the better portion. Because the issue is not the activity. The issue is the priority. Martha emphasized serving and assumed at that moment that she was doing the more important activity. That's why she got upset with her sister. She thought Mary was doing the less important thing at that moment. 
And Jesus lovingly confronted Martha's misconception by informing her that Mary was the one who had made the better choice. You see, sometimes we don't choose the better option. It's not that we choose the wrong option or the bad option or the sinful option. We just don't make the best choice in the moment. And when Jesus addressed this situation, he pointed to Martha and said, there's, there's one thing that's necessary. Not one thing that's good. Because both serving and listening were good. He said, there's one thing that's necessary. His point is that the priority right now should be on this one thing. What I want you to consider this morning, what the Mary and Martha episode forces us to ask ourselves, is am I focused on the one thing that is necessary? Let's face it. Our lives are bombarded with many tasks, with many responsibilities, with many ambitions. And, and, and many of these are good and wholesome and even biblical. It's good, it's wholesome, it's biblical to work. Since the creation of the world, we've been workers. Work didn't start when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. It was part of Eden. Genesis chapter 2 and verse, seven, just verse 15 tells us that God put Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. Work is not a consequence of the fall. Work predated the fall. Work is a good thing. Work is biblical. Jesus, I mean, I'm sorry, Paul will tell us in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23 that whatever, your hand, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Your work is supposed to be God-glorifying. And we're also told by Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10 that if anyone is not willing to work, he shall not eat. There is an expectation that you're going to work, that you're going to contribute, that you're not going to be lazy. So work in and of itself is a good, wholesome, biblical thing. But when work becomes the priority, when our relationship with the Lord is put on the back burner in favor of work, then we've forgotten the one thing that is necessary. What about raising a family? It is good and wholesome and biblical to raise a family, and raising a family isn't easy. But think about it. The expectation of Scripture as a parent is that you are going to help your child grow like Christ did in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and in favor with man. And guess what? In order to accomplish that, you're going to have to involve your children in educational opportunities that will advance them academically. You're going to have to involve your children in opportunities for physical exercise and for physical growth in order to maintain their physical health. If you're going to 
uh, grow your child like Christ did, then you're going to have to involve them in social opportunities so that they develop the skills necessary to interact with people and so that they can develop relationships, friendships that will be part of their life. And if you're going to grow your child in that same way, you're going to have to involve them in spiritual growth opportunities. And guess what? All that takes time. All of that takes energy. And that's good and wholesome. And as I'm pointing out, that's biblical. But if your kids become the priority above the Lord, then something's wrong. Because there is one thing that is necessary. You know, it's, it's good and it's wholesome and it's biblical to take care of your body. Your body is identified in 1 Corinthians as a temple of the Lord, a modern-day temple, and you're expected to take care of it. You're expected to treat it correctly. You're expected to get rest. God commanded in his top ten commands, he said, all right, I'm making sure everybody gets a day of rest. I'm requiring it of my people under Mosaic law. Why do you think God did that? Because he knew, he knew we needed it. He knew mankind needed to unwind, to recuperate, to rest. And not just mankind. He required it of the animals that were used in work. He required it of the land when you read about Mosaic Law's demands on letting the land rest. God knew physically there were certain things we need. The dietary laws of, of, uh, of, of the Mosaic law all speak to healthy habits from what you eat. God intended for us to take care of this body that he's created for us while we use it. And so it's good, wholesome, even biblical for you to be concerned about your body, to take care of your health, to exercise, to rest, all of those things, but when they become the priority, then you've lost sight of the one thing that is necessary. There are a lot of good things that we can bring into our life and spend our time doing and focus on, but there is only one thing that is necessary. See, when it comes to our lives, it's not always a matter of us engaging in the wrong activity or a sinful activity, or a bad activity, but oftentimes it's a matter of us getting the priorities out of line. As we enter 2023, may we do so with a mindset that says, we're going to choose the good portion this year. And every decision we make, we're going to choose the good portion, meaning we're going to prioritize what God calls us to prioritize, and above all else, that's him. That's what we should learn from the Mary and Martha episode, that one thing is necessary, and we're going to make it our aim to always choose that one thing. But that's not the only time that Jesus used the phrase one thing. The other occasion is in his encounter with the rich young ruler. You, we're going to read Mark's account of this in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 22, but Matthew 19 and Luke 18 also record the story of the rich young ruler. 
But if you'll turn to Mark chapter 10, we'll pick up the reading in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We refer to the individual Jesus encountered in this story as the rich young ruler. That title is actually, is actually a compilation of all of the details we get from Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account. All of them mention his wealth, but only Matthew mentions that he's young, and only Luke mentions that he's, he's a ruler. But what's most interesting about this guy is he asks the one question that all of us want to ask Jesus. What do I got to do to ensure my salvation? What must I do to inherit eternal life? This guy wants to know the secret to salvation. And Jesus' response to him is the same as it would be to us today. Keep my commandments. That's what he tells this guy. If you'll just obey, if you'll keep the commandments, you'll have eternal life. That's not really enough for the rich young ruler, though. I mean, there's 613 commandments in Mosaic Law. Surely, surely there are some that are more important than others. I mean, surely do not murder is going to rank higher than some of the other commands that appear in Scripture. So he wants to know what's the priority list. And Jesus responds by giving the second half of the Ten Commandments. It's interesting, the, the, the commands that Jesus chose to specifically mention are all commandments that are interpersonal. All commandments that affect relationships between man and man, rather than the ones that were focused on man and God. He didn't list, have no other gods before me. He didn't talk about no graven images. He didn't talk about not using the Lord's name in vain or keeping the Sabbath for that matter. It's do not murder, do not commit adultery, and so on. Even honor your father and mother, make it into this list. And it's interesting because the commandments Jesus chose to emphasize all focus on external and observable behavior that others can evaluate. I mean, I, I can look at you, and all, if I have a listing of everything you've ever done, I'll know whether or not you murdered somebody. Will I know if I had a listing of everything you've ever done, whether or not you've had another God ahead of God? No. 
Not necessarily. This was a list of things that you can easily check off. And so this guy, this rich young ruler responds with, I've kept all the commandments. And at first, you and I are both going, yeah, right. There's no way you've kept all the commandments. No one has. Scripture tells us that. But do you remember what Paul said when he gave his religious resume, when Paul reflected on his life as a Pharisee before he became a Christian? You can read it in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 6. He described himself saying, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul even asserted in Philippians chapter 3 that in his life before he found Christ, he believed himself to have never broken Mosaic law. Because Paul and the rich young ruler at that time both believed that it was about keeping the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law. When Jesus presented the Sermon on the Mount and started that process of saying, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you, you have heard that it was said, do not murder, but I tell you, do not be angry with your brother. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, do not lust. When Jesus pointed out the spirit of the law, the intent of the law, the heart of the law is what really mattered, then it opened up a whole new understanding of whether or not we keep the law. But at this moment, this guy had never murdered anybody. This guy had never committed adultery. This guy had honored his father and mother. So he's checking these off and going, I've kept all of them. But it's interesting to me. Because despite obeying all of the law's commands since childhood, the rich young ruler was still uncertain of his salvation. He could check off every command but he still wasn't sure he was saved. You ever been there? You ever felt like this guy? Deep down, he knows something is missing. And this is especially evident in Matthew's account where the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 20, upon hearing Jesus' list of commandments, says, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? He knew something was missing. He knew, he knew he wasn't complete. And that's when Jesus confronts the one thing that needed to change. In Mark's gospel, he said, you lack one thing. And then instructed him to go sell all that you have and give to the poor and come follow me. Jesus said there's one thing. Just one thing you're missing. One thing that you're lacking. Yeah, you've kept all the commandments, but there's one thing that you're still holding on to, that you're not letting go of, that God is not in control of in your life. One thing. And if you'll get rid of this one thing, you will have treasure in heaven. And that's when Jesus tells him, sell all you've got. For this guy, the one thing was his wealth and his possessions. Now, I want to point out something. Nowhere in the Bible are we as Christians instructed to sell everything we have and give it to the poor. It is not a universal requirement. Now, we are commanded to be generous, 
and to help the poor. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy in order to store up treasure in heaven. But even in that instruction, Jesus did not command us to sell everything like he did the rich young ruler. And it's very interesting when Luke gives us the story of the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. He follows it up in the very next chapter, Luke chapter 19, with the story of another rich guy named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus did give half of his wealth to the poor, and he did pay back people, but he didn't give up everything. It wasn't a requirement for Zacchaeus. Because when Zacchaeus turned to Christ, he gave everything up. He surrendered everything. He didn't have to give up all of his money. But the rich young ruler did, because he was still holding on to his money, to his wealth, to his possessions, as a God, little g God, in his life. See, the whole point of the story is this. Jesus revealed that the rich young ruler's uncertainty was due to his refusal to surrender everything to God. He was still holding back something for himself. Does that sound familiar? Because far too often... We do the exact same thing. Far too often, people hold on to one thing that they're not willing to let God have control of. Maybe for you, that one thing is your finances, just like the rich young ruler. And you're not willing to be benevolent. You're not willing to live contently. You're not willing to give to the growth of the kingdom in a bountiful way. Maybe it's your time. Maybe you're not willing to part with your time You're holding on to your time for yourself. And that's why, that's the reason you only show up on a Sunday morning for worship. Maybe that's why you don't participate in any of the fellowship or service or evangelistic opportunities of the congregation. Maybe that's why you have so few relationships within the body of Christ, because you won't give up your time. Maybe it's your talents, your skill sets, your abilities. Maybe you won't sacrifice those things that God has given you to use for His glory. Maybe you've got the capability to lead singing, but you refuse to do it. Maybe you have the ability and the knowledge to teach Bible classes, but you refuse to do it. Maybe you have the ability to just be a care group leader, to be the point of contact when people have needs, and you just refuse to do it. Maybe, maybe you just have the ability to help set up or take down tables and chairs, but you refuse to do it. Maybe you're holding on to your talents, your abilities, your skill sets. Maybe it's more personal. 
Maybe it's your entertainment. Maybe you don't want to give up those shows you enjoy watching so much on Netflix. Maybe you don't want to give up those musicians you really enjoy listening to, even though the content they sing about is cruel, chauvinistic, sexual. Maybe you don't want to give up your social media. Maybe you don't want to stop posting things that shouldn't be posted. Maybe you don't want to stop antagonizing situations that you shouldn't be antagonizing. Maybe you don't want to stop saying things anonymously on the internet that you shouldn't be saying at all. Maybe you don't want to give up your politics. Maybe you don't want to give up those agendas, even though they might be aligned with spiritual truths. But your political party is more important than the Lord. Maybe you don't want to give up your hobbies. Maybe you enjoy those things you do on the side so much that you're unwilling to part with them, and they're the one thing you lack. You see, we all have a one thing, something we're going to have to sacrifice at some point in our life. Maybe you have already sacrificed it, or maybe you're holding on to it like the rich young ruler today. See, the rich young ruler's encounter forces us to think, what one thing do I lack? What's the one area of my life that is preventing me from the assurance of eternal life? And it's not going to be the same for everybody. Just as not everybody's going to be asked to sell all they have and give it to the poor, like the rich young ruler. But did you notice that rich young ruler went away sorrowful? That one thing was more important to him than the one thing. That one thing, his possessions, his wealth, his finances, was more important than his soul. And he walked away from Jesus sorrowful. Jesus made it very clear that if you let anything take the place in your life that should be solely reserved for the Lord, it's going to prevent you from receiving eternal life. So may the story of the rich young ruler challenge all of us to discover the one thing we still lack so that we can surrender it to the Lord in 2023. You know, according to legend, at the end of World War II, General Douglas MacArthur stood on the deck of the USS Missouri as an admiral from the Japanese Imperial Forces came aboard to present terms of surrender on behalf of his government. At an appropriate time, that Japanese admirable, admiral approached MacArthur and stuck out his hand. But General MacArthur didn't move. 
He kept his hands at his side and he looked at the Japanese admiral and said, Sir, your sword first, please. What General MacArthur was communicating is that in order for the relationship to move forward, surrender had to happen first. The same is true of us with the Lord today, and every day for that matter. In order for the relationship to move forward, we have to be willing to surrender everything to Him. So what do you need to surrender today? What's the one thing you still lack? We encourage you to turn that over to Him now, while together we stand and sing. I'm